welcome to episode 50 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's February 25th, and today we're going to have our second discussion on ancient medicine and disease, but this time their connections to religious heresy, perhaps not the most obvious link for all of our audience. Our guest today is Jessica Wright. Jess received her PhD from Princeton in 2016 and is a teaching associate in late antique history at the University of Sheffield in the United Kingdom. Jess is a historian of the body and studies representations of the brain and mental experience in philosophical, medical, and theological texts of late antiquity. Although Jess works primarily on the literature of Greek and Roman antiquity, she does so using contemporary philosophy and history of science and medicine. Jess has published several articles and book chapters on late antique authors and their understanding of the brain, as well as spiritual disorders and religious differences from a medical perspective. She has translated a series of letters about early 17th century Jesuits in Ethiopia, which came out in 2017, and her current book project is entitled The Care of the Brain in Early Christianity. Jess has also taught courses on classics and Latin as part of a local prison teaching initiative while in New Jersey, and wrote about it in Eidolon, an open access online journal. So hi, Jess, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So this episode ties with a previous episode in that it looks at how ancient practitioners and others thought about health, both physical health, but also mental health. And we'll start the episode discussing ancient medicine and its developments and transition from there to a connection that is perhaps not intuitive for us today, connecting between a person's ideological beliefs, really, and their mental health. I guess you could find some similarities today, at least colloquially, but in late antiquity, we'll consider how thinkers such as Augustine thought of heresy as some sort of mental infectious disease. And we've alluded to a similar idea once or twice in previous episodes, memes in the Dawkins' sense of ideas having some kind of limited sort of agency that allows them to replicate by, so to speak, infecting others. Yeah, mental health is actually something we haven't spoken about very often on this podcast, partially since infectious diseases we discuss are typically physiological rather than psychological, perhaps. The notion that ideas could be really infectious might seem a little absurd today, but if we remove, you know, germ theory, bacteriology, and the like, coming up with such a theory isn't necessarily that far-fetched. And if correct belief, that is to say orthodoxy, is extremely important in your world, like it was for many in late antiquity, you might try to understand your problems, all these heretics and all these heresies, through various other paradigms and health ways, such as mental health. But before we begin, Lee, I just want to say congrats on reaching episode 50. Yeah, we've done it, bro. I think we're, we're going to have a special episode on episode 52 for, for like the year, but we have gotten to 50. So good job to us. Well put, Lee, well put. But is your daughter back in daycare? Have things opened up now that you're all magically vaccinated? And by all, I mean all the Israelis? So she went to daycare, spent there four days, and on her fourth day, I was called to pick her up because she had a fever. So she's not in daycare anymore. Yeah. Other than that, our general elections are coming up in less than a month. And 
partially because of that, there is increasing pressure on people to get vaccinated. So we, that is to say the government, can say that we, that is to say Israel, won the war against COVID and we can return to normal. And so that's one story. The other story is on foreign relations that I think this was actually covered in the New York Times, that Israel is giving away vaccines to distant allies or maybe hopeful allies. And most of these are between 1,000 and 5,000 vaccines. I mean, this is clearly used politically on one hand. And on the other hand, the, the very local Palestinians are getting no such vaccines from Israel. Yeah, there's been a number of articles about vaccines being traded for recognition of Jerusalem as the capital or moving down that path, I guess. Which, if you think about it, Merle, is not something we've seen in movies such as Contagion, where there was nothing similar to this politically. But yeah. But how are you, Merle? And are you celebrating Purim together with your children this weekend? No, uh, we didn't get our act together. We couldn't find the ingredients we actually needed for Hamantaschen. Every once in a while, I come to the re-recognition that it's hard to find particular Jewish food, we might say, in Annapolis. We couldn't find uh, kosher meat, for example, very easily. And the same way you can't find really much else aside from like Passover matzah. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing that's been fun, as I sent to you, Lee, was my daughter uh, came on and joined a different podcast that I was on called COVID Calls. And she Zoom bombed, I guess we could say, and stood next to me. And so my wife ran in, grabbed her and ran out in about 10, 15 seconds and shut the door with her leg. So it was actually quite impressive. Everyone's been very receptive to my wife's skills when it comes to this. Yeah, it could have been worse, Merle. It could have been worse. No, my daughter was very good. She was just standing there drinking from her sippy cup, of, which has baby Yoda on it, and drinking some seltzer which is her favorite thing in the world to drink. Do you know the song Baby Yoda? No, I don't. And I don't want to hear you sing either. So you can send it to me <laughs> later. And where are you, Jess? And how are things going there? I am in Sheffield, which on moving back here from the US, it felt like there was no virus at all. I moved from a context where everyone was masked outside and in every possible context to a part of the world where there's almost no masking outside and where when I arrived, the case number was really quite low. Um, the cases here, of course, spiked dramatically over November, December and January. They're going down now, which is relieving. But it's been interesting to spend the first half of my pandemic in in Texas and the second half in the, in the north of England, where there's very different protocols for uh, responding to the pandemic and very different signals to suggest that we're even in pandemic at all. Can I ask, when you were in Texas, were you in an urban setting in San Antonio? Because one imagines very stereotypically, obviously, that Texas would not take this seriously. San Antonio is both an urban setting and one of the democratic centers in Texas, which I think is partially why my experience was very much of people taking COVID pretty seriously. So I think 
you're probably the first guest we've had who moved during COVID. So how is that experience, right? You moved, I mean, you moved between continents, so even more than the usual move. Was everything functioning? I mean, how was it? When you say was everything functioning, do you mean the kind of logistics of moving, going through an airport, shipping belongings, that kind of thing? Yeah, all the companies that you need to use, whether airlines or, I mean, we used a shipping company that came to the United States, took our stuff, shipped it, and we got it like several months afterwards. So was all that okay? Yes, overall, it's going to work out fine. I did book my flight in a bit of a hurry once I decided to move back because various airlines were beginning to reduce the number of flights they were running. I couldn't fly directly out of Austin. There was a period where I thought I would drive from Texas to Atlanta. And so there, there have definitely been some different, I've had to get more creative with how I imagined this move. And when the new variant showed up in the UK in, I think it was December, there was a period where I was worried that I would ship things from Texas and then the country would be blockaded and nothing would get in. It's um, my, my belongings are still in the middle of the ocean somewhere at an unknown location. My understanding at this point is that the ports are open and that there are no longer substantial queues to unload shipments. But it's it's more, I think, more a case of patience, creativity, and not worrying about getting everything done. I'm still waiting to register with my GP, and my um, I'm forgetting the word for it. But the paperwork to put me on the voting register is somewhere in the ether because all of the government offices are currently closed. So that kind of thing, I think, is just going to take patience and time. But overall, it seems like it wasn't as difficult as it could have been. I haven't been on an airplane for, I think, a year and a half now, ever since we moved here, which is exceptional to what I had going on a few years before that. So my life has definitely changed. And it's it's always interesting to hear how some of these things are functioning, right? So some airports and some airlines are moving from place to place. But uh, yeah. So let's begin with our customary first easy question, as Lee likes to say. What is ancient medicine and how do we define it? It cracks me up that you think this is an easy question. Of course, um, it's much more complicated than it, than it seems on the tin. So when people talk about ancient medicine, they often mean ancient Greek medicine specifically the naturalistic theories about the body and the sources and treatment of disease that developed in Greek cultural contexts between the 5th century BCE and the 2nd century CE, which is a pretty narrow and specific understanding of what we mean by ancient medicine. Um, and I can talk much more about that if you're interested. I have lots of thoughts on what it means to have a category called ancient medicine that refers specifically to Greece between the 5th century BCE and the 2nd century CE. So why don't you? So what are your thoughts Absolutely. about that? 
I think this is a very narrow and specific version of ancient medicine. There's obviously been healing practices and theories of the body and disease throughout history and prehistory across different cultural contexts and communities. And the fact that ancient medicine is habitually used to refer to, to this very specific um, chronological and cultural window, I think reflects their prominence as interlocutors, as jumping off points as presumed prototypes within early modern European science and medicine. And so the antiquity that is understood in the term ancient is European antiquity or an appropriated European antiquity. And the medicine in ancient medicine is counted as medicine because it's understood to be an ancestor of modern biomedicine specifically. Isn't part of this an issue of sources? So that is to say that we have more sources about Greek medicine within that time frame that you mentioned. So 5th century BCE to 2nd century CE. And we have much less, if at all, sources of all the other practices that were going on, let's say around the Mediterranean and maybe a bit beyond in that time frame. To a certain extent, there's some really interesting work that's being done right now to extend uh, the accessibility of other kinds of evidence from surrounding regions. There's a book by an author whose name I'm forgetting called Ancient Medicine that I can put in the notes for the podcast that does a really great job of gathering up some of that evidence and presenting it accessibly. I do, though, think it's as much a problem of what evidence has been valued and preserved and treated as evidence is treated as legitimate evidence as the existence of the sources themselves. I think there's been a small industry in gathering and uh, transmitting Greek medical texts because of the prior assumption that Greek medicine is the kind of starting point or root of a universal category medicine. And I find that in need of some re-examination, as I think a lot of current scholars do. So can I first push us maybe to a slightly later period, right beyond that 200 CE point? Mm -hmm. We had a good conversation last week with someone about innovation in late antique medicine. So how do you see changes from an ancient to a late ancient world? And what might some of those be? You know, there's a famous saying in the study of late ancient medicine that late antique medical writers, uh, and you may have heard this on your previous podcast, are treated like uh, the medical refrigerators of late antiquity, which basically means that they're, they're treated as being responsible for preserving earlier ideas, but seem to produce none of their own. There's this narrative of stagnation that is seen to foreshadow decline in the fields of medicine and science, specifically in the Western part of the Roman Empire. So what was going to become medieval Europe? And it's true that in general, late antique medical writers appear to be more interested in translating, in summarizing and synthesizing earlier work than in developing new theories. 
Um, although it's hard to say how much this reflects transformation in medical practice. And so I was, I was thinking about this question before we came on, and I almost think that one of the key changes that we see in late antique medicine is cessation of change. And that is new. Medicine, medical culture until late antiquity very much centers around or privileges the assertion of oneself against existing theories. Whereas late antique medical authors establish their authority by mastering and organizing the theories of past authorities. So there's a new focus on texts in late antiquity, especially within education. There's much less emphasis on dissection. There's maybe increasing emphasis on a split between intellectual medical theorizing and medical practice. But really one of the interesting shifts that we see in the third and then the fourth century is much less concern to differentiate oneself as a medical author and much more emphasis on demonstrating a kind of mastery of what has gone before, the production of encyclopedia, the creation of a text that is using existing medical theories to make medical knowledge um, more generally accessible. I think that's a very useful way to think about the different manners in which knowledge is gathered, accumulated, and used. Could we maybe try to make some of this discussion a bit more concrete by maybe mentioning a few of the historical or, or semi-historical figures, the, the individuals that we know of from this period that listeners may have, have heard about some of these people? Are you asking about uh, medical authors in late antiquity or medical authors in ancient medicine more generally? I'd say ancient medicine more generally. So let's start from the early 5th century BCE and move forward until you don't find anyone else who's famous enough, <laughs> yeah, who's famous enough for our listeners to know. Absolutely. So the there's there's two main figures in ancient Greek medicine. There were obviously far more medical practitioners than that, but there's two that are really important by the time you get to late antiquity. And the first of those is Hippocrates, who really is uh, legendary, semi-historical. There's an excellent book that came out a year or so ago by Helen King on the appropriation of Hippocrates in digital contexts. And she includes a chapter titled, What We Know About Hippocrates, and the chapter is two sentences long. So what we know about Hippocrates is that he was a Greek physician and medical author and teacher from the island of Kos, who lived sometime in the late 5th or early 4th centuries BCE. That's about it. There's maybe 60 medical texts ascribed to Hippocrates, although even in antiquity, no one could decide which he might have written, which were written by his children, by his students, by later emulators. What really holds this body of work together is its focus on naturalistic explanations for how the body functions and why it goes wrong over and above any kind of supernatural explanation, whether that include gods or demons. So that's our first figure. Galen 
would be our second figure. And Galen is much easier to pin down in part because he loved to talk about himself, especially his qualifications, his virtues, and his life experiences. Galen, so I've heard, although I have not measured this, is responsible for 20% of surviving Greek texts um, before, I think, before the Byzantine period. Actually, don't quote me on that. It might just be before late antiquity. Galen is responsible for a huge quantity of existing Greek material, much of which has not been edited, much less translated. Like Hippocrates, Galen is a Greek, but he's born after the heyday of Greek democracy and during the high point of Roman imperial rule. So he's a Greek living under Roman rule. And indeed, he was a physician to several emperors, Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, and then Septimius Severus. And Galen's point of excellence was systematization. He wrote extraordinarily widely, covering topics as diverse as pharmacology, bone structure, how to prepare animals for dissection, the etymology of old words, and the usefulness of logic in medicine. One of my favorite titles of a work by Galen is on why the doctor should also be a philosopher. So Hippocrates and Galen together form the late antique curriculum in medicine. When we look at what medical students are reading in Alexandria, in the the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, they're primarily reading works that are ascribed to Hippocrates or Galen and commentaries on those works. In the Roman West, the picture is a little bit different. In the Roman West, um, one of the most important figures is uh, the Methodist physician, Serranus, Methodist in the sense of a medical school of thought, not in the sense of a Christian denomination. And Serranus writes several works on acute diseases, on chronic diseases, and on gynecology. And these works get translated into Latin. So Serranus is writing in Greek, but his works get translated into Latin somewhat frequently in the 4th and 5th centuries in Roman North Africa. And those are some of the works that become particularly influential for late antique audiences, including the the Christian preachers and bishops that we'll talk about today, but also more generally in the medieval West. So since you mentioned Christianity here, what does, if anything, the development of Christianity do to the practice of ancient medicine? You know, it's interesting. Traditionally, early Christianity has been thought of as standing in opposition to existing therapeutic systems, whether they be medical, i.e. naturalistic, textual, or what we might call magical, for example, the use of amulets, the use of charms. And this opposition isn't entirely without reason. There are abundant early Christian sources that condemn the use of magical or medical remedies and that argue for reliance on God. There's also all of those late antique saints' lives that tell stories about 
religious figures who cure terrible illnesses where the physicians fail. And so it's quite easy to give an account of early Christianity as stamping out ancient naturalistic medicine as a kind of out of a kind of theological purism or professional competitiveness. Um, and then there's an added complication that I don't really know what to do with, um, that some early Christian sources discuss illness as a test sent by God or as a sign of spiritual excellence, which means we also have these stories of famous ascetic practitioners refusing medical treatment as though being ill as a kind of virtue. And so all of this adds up to this picture where early Christianity generally appears in conflict with ancient medicine. But at the same time, historians have been arguing increasingly that medicine was a core part of early Christian thinking. So on the one hand, we have these early Christian sources that suggest that Christianity and medicine are in some kind of competition or that the very work of medicine is counter to ascetic excellence. And on the other hand, like a lot of ancient philosophers and spiritual leaders, preachers and bishops styled themselves and Jesus as physicians of the soul. I mean, this is why there's any kind of competition between medical and religious experts in the first place. Both are understood to offer forms of healing. And so for the Christians, medicine is seen to promise only healing of the body while they're healing the soul and maybe as a bonus, although somewhat contentiously, sometimes the body also. And what this means, why this is important, is that Christian thought and forms of expression seem to have been shaped through engagement with ancient medicine. On the one hand, you have this rejection of medicine. And on the other hand, you have its entire integration, its absorption, the absorption of terms and metaphors and ways of thinking about how to approach problems in the world um, that are drawing deeply upon a medical frame. And then at the same time, as Christianity is drawing on medicine for its metaphors and its models, Christian discourse becomes this kind of vehicle for transmitting and tweaking and appropriating ancient medical ideas. So a lot of the ideas from ancient medicine moved into ancient Christianity where they were maybe used for different purposes. So let's zoom out a bit and maybe consider how these practitioners, so broadly speaking, ancient, late antique practitioners thought about disease and maybe specifically infectious disease. So what caused it? How can we solve it? Medical practitioners working within the ancient Greek tradition understood disease often as being caused by some kind of imbalance, corruption, or blockage, especially of the humors, which were understood to be these different fluids that moved about within the body, or of the pneuma, sometimes called pneuma, often translated as spirit. In general, there weren't theories of um, contagion in the way that we might understand them. 
there was no clear notion of distinct pathogens that could travel from one body to the next. Although there was a clear recognition that contact with a sick person could cause sickness in oneself. There was this sense that disease could be caused by substances coming from outside the body, but this tended to be fumes produced by rotting matter or too much heat in the air. The closest we really get to a sense of infectiousness in the way that we think of it now, and I'm sure you've come across this elsewhere, is is in miasma or pollution. And so religious contexts in antiquity where uh, there's different kinds of cleansing practices that are necessary to avoid spreading a more, or what we might think of as a more symbolic pollution. But within within medical theory itself, um, the causes of disease tend to be much more internal, imbalance, corruption, and blockage. So they knew that if you stand next to people who are sick, there is a chance, a higher chance that you would also get sick. But what was the mechanism that they used to, to, to explain that? For the most part, they didn't. And you can see this contradiction in, or you can see this uh, lack of explanation most clearly in the account by Thucydides of the famous plague of Athens during the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides describes this plague that affects more people than he can possibly imagine in Athens. And he emphasizes the way in which medical practitioners in particular are struck down by this plague because they are spending time with the sick. And then he says, why did the plague happen? People have their theories. I'm not going to give them. Perhaps the Spartans put poison in our well. At the very end, he describes the way in which the plague seems to fulfill an old prophecy or a curse. But there is no existing agreed upon explanation for why if a doctor is spending time with lots of sick people, that doctor is going to get sick or why people choose to avoid the homes of those who are sick. It's just what happens. There's there's some suggestion in a work by Galen that the kind of air that makes you sick might contain the seeds of plague and that particular kinds of bodies might absorb or be affected by those seeds in ways that healthy bodies aren't. But there's no consistent theory of why you get sick when you're proximate to someone else who has a disease. Which I would say is actually fascinating, right? Because the way I, as a non-practitioner, not anyone who has had any special interest in medicine until let's say like two or three years ago, my intuitive way of thinking about health, I mean, a pretty big part of that is infection. And so what you're saying, Jess, is that they had, they clearly thought a lot about this. They wrote a lot about this, but the idea of infection was more or less absent or almost completely absent from their thought and writing. And I think there are ways of talking about the transmission of troubling substances, the transmission of symptoms, 
happened much more in religious discourse. And so it's not that they didn't have ways of talking about the dangers of contact between bodies. It just didn't play as significant a role in how they were framing medical theories. There were some theories that a certain kind of air or water might cause the same illness in a large group of people. And so there's one text in particular, Airs, Waters, Places, that frames each new account of a different epidemic in terms of what direction the wind was coming from that year and whether there were mountains in the way of the wind or whether the people were close to the sea. And so there was this idea that an entire community might be struck down by the same kind of disease because of the particular weather conditions. But again, there, there's no sense that one one body is dangerous to another body. That's something that happens much more within a religious frame for them. So maybe now we can turn to that religious framework and look at how medical ideas and broader religious ideas were intertwined, particularly here thinking about the case of Christian heresies. But before we do that, maybe you can give our audience a quick definition of what a Christian heresy is, and then how it's understood as a medical illness. So my definition of a Christian heresy is that it's simply a, a theological idea or practice that is seen as or presented as divergent from, from the mainstream, from the norm, we might say. In early Christianity, heresiology that is the cataloging of heresies, was a powerful strategy for diminishing your opponents and establishing your own authorities. In general, heresy was a derogatory term. No one, to my knowledge, identified as a heretic in late antiquity, although I think that might be different now. I once attended a church where the priest happily identified as a heretic. So heresy and heresiology were tools for undermining religious practices, theories, groups, and individuals by declaring them to be deviating from some kind of truth. So that's how I would define heresy. Yeah, I think your point about a church is interesting because I once learned from one of my teachers, who remained nameless, to explain to me the different theological differences pointed out that if you asked random people on a street who were Christian, let's say, to define the relationship between God the Father and Jesus, almost everyone would be an Aryan heretic of some kind or another. But there are broader reasons why all this matters, as I later learned. But I always liked that story in terms of how we think about theology today, perhaps. Okay, so that's heresy, and I guess that heresy is defined by the majority, the mainstream, the winners get to define who, who's a heretic and who, who's orthodox, really. And there might be some parallels, at least here, with mental illness today, but maybe say a bit more about how heresies are understood as mental illnesses back then, in late antiquity, really. Absolutely. So... As in our own day, 
it was quite common throughout antiquity to describe deviance or difference in terms of mental illness. Demosthenes is doing it, Cicero is doing it, all of these different political speakers were describing their opponents as insane, were diagnosing them with madness. Often this was quite casual. We might think about the designation of Nancy Pelosi as crazy Nancy. Sometimes it was more specific. There was a lot of debate four or five years ago that really reminded me of this around whether Trump could be diagnosed as a narcissist. And in a similar way, early Christians were using the terminology of mental illness across a wide spectrum. Sometimes you have the designation of um, Arians as Ariomaniacs in a lot of early Christian texts. Sometimes this kind of casual joining of mania to terms associated with heresy simply as a way of dismissing or denigrating and other times with more technical specificity to suggest that the wrong ideas or practices of opponents were symptomatic of disease. And one of one of the things that I think um, made mental illnesses useful in this kind of polemic and that I think still is part of their usefulness is that they appear to carry this kind of moral weight. And so even now we tend to make this kind of basic connection between madness and badness that is deeply problematic. There's a historian of mental illness in antiquity, Chiara Thumiga, who's recently suggested that this moralization of mental illness begins or perhaps gains significance within early Christianity. And I would thoroughly agree. At the core of that, I think, is the fact that the very concept of mental illness in late antiquity and now has two main points of origin. One is this medical idea of diseases affecting cognitive functioning, which by late antiquity were understood to be diseases of the brain, primarily. And the second was the philosophical idea of unwelcome emotions or desires as being diseases of the soul. And something that we see in late antique polemic against heretics, quote unquote heretics, is a kind of merging between um, the medical concept of diseases affecting cognitive functioning and the philosophical concept of diseases of the soul. And the consequence of that is that seizures or hallucinations, for example, could get conflated with diseases of the soul and that wrong belief could fall fall into both categories, that wrong belief could represent a kind of hallucination, but it could also be this fundamental psychic illness. So you've discussed in some of your work how Augustine is very important to this process. I think of Augustine, like I think of Galen, I think it's massive amounts of work survive, right? I think it's with Augustine, it's like 5 million words, you know, so it just kind of overwhelms the corpus of everyone else. Maybe you can give us first, who is Augustine? And then we'll take it from there. Augustine was a fourth century bishop in North Africa, specifically the Bishop of Hippo Regius. He's important 
for the reasons that you've said. He's important both because of the political and religious influence that he had during his lifetime and also because of the impact of his writings. He wrote a vast quantity of highly theoretical texts, but he also wrote or has ascribed to him an enormous body of sermons which circulated as texts for subsequent preachers. Okay, so that's Augustine. How did Augustine think about mental illness as a bishop, preacher, man of letters, so to speak? What was his take on mental illness? So Augustine very much participated in this more general, uh, what I've sometimes talked about as a discourse of crazy to diminish his opponents. He certainly... Uh, engaged in this more casual dismissal of Donatists, of Pelagians, also of Jews, of pagans as being not mentally sound. Where he stands out is in developing what seems like a very well-informed account of a specific mental illness to account for the quote-unquote symptoms of heresy. He's thinking in particular about the illness phrenitis, which was commonly understood to be a brain disease that caused acute fever and acute delirium, but more importantly, created a kind of superhuman strength in the patient that masked the fatality of the condition. The stronger you felt and the stronger you appeared, the closer you were to death. And Augustine loves this. He uses it as a model for talking about the experience and the appearance of spiritual strength in his religious opponents. The key innovation I think he's making here is to take a specific diagnosis and use its symptoms as a way of pathologizing his enemies rather than this more generic discourse. And this raises a question that I think remains fairly open that might not even be answerable of whether he's using phrenitis as a metaphor, as I think is the case when people say, oh, that's crazy. Or if he's describing a distinct category that we might possibly call spiritual phrenitis or phrenitis of the soul. I think it raises this question of whether he's using medical metaphors as a kind of rhetorical flourish or if he's trying to carve out a new kind of space that sits between a medical understanding of mental illness and a religious understanding of heresy, a a space between where he can draw on the authority of diagnosis in order to prescribe behavioral and cognitive changes. Okay, so I have a question. If heresies are a form of mental illness, and if Augustine is, let's say, an Orthodox Christian who's a preacher, a a spiritual doctor, so to speak, right? He's supposed to heal people's souls or or cure people's souls or, or treat their souls. How come he cannot convert or win against these heretics? If he's a good doctor, right, a good spiritual doctor, both he and his followers, 
should expect that he would be able to, to cure all these heretics and get them to see true faith, true belief, orthodoxy? The problem, Lee, is that they don't want to see the doctor. And so this is the other central symptom of phronitis, is that the person who suffers from from phrenitis resists medical attention because they feel stronger than they have ever felt in their lives. And so the key here is that it's both the appearance of strength, they're actually strong, that's why other people might want to follow them, and it's the experience of strength. There's a kind of high from having phrenitis, at least in this framing. And so Augustine's challenge is convincing people to accept his treatment and convincing the authorities to enact coercive treatment. That neatly describes actually this central paradox that Augustine seems to lay out, right? He has the healing ways, but if you don't know better to come to him, then there's no way to be healed in a sense. How does this idea get developed after his life, does it become the normative take on heresies or what kind of happens with it? Augustine's particular take on phrenitis as a way of talking about religious difference and resistance to spiritual healing crops up in subsequent Latin preachers. So it does seem like Augustine's way of thinking about phrenitis had a kind of um, infectious effect, we might say, on medieval Latin preaching. His view that heresy could be understood as a mental illness became so prevalent. And it wasn't just his view. He was very much participating in a in a common uh, cultural trend. But this view that heresy could be understood as a mental illness became so prevalent as to be basically unquestioned. But I'm also interested in its potential impact on popular understandings of mental illness as they circulated in late antiquity and the medieval period. If you primarily learn about the concept of phrenitis from your preacher talking about uh, religious deviance, that's going to shift your understanding of phrenitis when it crops up in a medical context. And so some of what I think this can show us is how ideas about heresy were shaped in late antiquity and the medieval period. And some of what I think it can show us is how Christianity impacted and spiritualized ideas of mental illness and kind of created a new set of connotations or resonances that would be in play if someone received a diagnosis of, for example, phrenitis. Okay, and what happens if we take late antiquity, so to speak, and try to compare it to the present day? Would you see any parallels between, again, this view that religious or maybe political difference equals mental health issues? And I'm speaking not necessarily rhetorically, but substantially. And contemporary discourse, let's say, either before or during COVID. Absolutely. I think the primary parallel is between late antique religious discourse and contemporary political discourse. 
although of course late antique religious discourse is political and contemporary political discourse is steeped in religious difference. The, the use of both casual and serious diagnosis has been prominent, especially in the past five years. And I think it goes beyond our understanding of organic brain-based mental illness. There's really, I think, obvious examples of people using brain-based mental illness in derogatory ways. But I've also become really interested in the use of terms from uh, psychotherapeutic discourse to uh, pseudo-diagnose or to actually diagnose um, individuals and groups. So if you think of the idea of victim culture, which has become a kind of flashpoint in the broader cultural conflicts that we're in. This is drawing specifically on vocabulary from transactional analysis for its understanding of the victim as a kind of unconscious manipulative role play that needs to be healed through a therapeutic means. So I think you're absolutely right. We're very much continuing to draw on therapeutic language and the language of mental illness more broadly to talk about political differences, differences in point of view, differences in commitment and kind of different orientations to what's true. And would you connect this to polarization within our political systems? So the underlying idea is that once you're polarized and the differences between you and your opponent are bigger than the similarities or what ties you two together. So it's easier to just push the us versus them dichotomy or distinction even further. And I think using the mental health language is, is really a way to other, the other group. So I absolutely think that the use of a discourse of crazy in its most casual sense is is participating in this kind of othering that you're talking about. I think it's closely connected to ways of thinking about monstrosity and the other and different kinds of dehumanization. I think there's something in the practice of diagnosis that is slightly different to um, many forms of othering that includes this sense that not only am I setting myself up as human in a way that my opponent is not, but I'm also setting myself up as an authority on how my opponent might be saved from themselves. So with those reflections moving us to today, We've now gone full circle. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Jess, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a delight to talk to you both. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jess. I thought that was a 
perfect complement to our previous episode with John Mulhall discussing ancient medicine and late ancient medicine more broadly. Yeah, and I think Jess did a very good job of contextualizing that field, the field of ancient, late ancient medicine, within a broader context. So in a sense, yes, she works on medicine, but she also works on it within a cultural and social context of the time. Yeah, she also gave us some great little factoids that I always like to learn from our podcast that Galen accounts for perhaps up to 20% of all surviving Greek texts, which if you compare that to, say, history texts, is just a proportion that we don't think of as so out of whack. But I have two things to say here. One is that I've heard the number 50% for Homer. And if both of those are true, so if you take Homer and Galen and put them together, so that's like 70% of extant Greek text, which is mind-boggling to really think about that. I mean, almost everything, 70% of all the texts we have were written by one of those two people. I mean, Homer's like one person, but never mind. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a project I once did, Lee, where I went through all the surviving Latin texts from the West from about 325 to 750. And when you go through that, you realize pretty quickly that most of the surviving texts from that area in that period are theological tracts or commentaries on various parts of the Bible, actually. And so the histories that we use or letters or all these things that we often think about from the late antique world is just a very, very slim percentage kind of layered on the top. Right. And it's interesting for me as a historian to realize that what I value the most, right? So the histories, the stories about the past, like the, the history writing is actually a very minor once you think about the broader corpus of what is being written and what contemporaries, that is to say, and ancient people or late antique people really thought about what is valuable for themselves. It, it was not history. It was literature. It was medicine. It was not history. So, Lee, are you now going to become a scholar of theology and study all these commentaries in the Bible and stuff? I think I'm going to leave that to you with your sermon work. Fair enough. But I think it also goes to show how much early modern notions and moving a little later into Enlightenment writers as well shape how we see the field even today. Jess was pretty clear about that that how her field came into being is really shaped by early modern perceptions, for example, of what the official quote unquote canon is. Yeah. Ancient things are good. Antiquity things are good. That is say Greco-Roman and Greek things are also good. And I think those notions have persisted and stayed with us until today. Let's walk around Washington DC and look at the architecture, I think. Right. Yeah. I guess you won't be doing that for a while. <laughs> no, no, I won't. But I'll, I'll speak about it in a class next year. So that's fine. There's also, I think, a good point she raised when it came to her specific work about Augustine, about obviously how much of his work survives and how smart he was 
for lack of a better term, to really get his work out there to push his ideas of heresy and mental illness into a kind of paradox that only Augustine himself could solve and how influential just in this one field, and there are many others we could talk about when it comes to Augustine because he does have 5 million words written, that he became because of all of this. So, you know, Merle, this actually brings up an interesting point. So I don't know how you were taught, but I was taught, I mean, ever since my undergraduate, that history is no longer a history of great people, right? You're not supposed to think about all these like great, usually men, usually white figures and how they shaped history or how they changed history or how they're necessary to for us to have history the way we do. And I think that's more or less a consensus that I got from my education, my training, and, and also now in my department and my professional life. But if you think about it this way, right? So you can think about all these major figures, right? So Augustine would be one, you'd have other major figures. Galen is another one, Plutarch is another one. Psellos from, from the Byzantine period is another guy. And in all these cases, these authors wrote so much that almost by definition, they shape the way we historians or people who, who use their texts to, to look at the past, think about that past. So if you want to look at it that way, so they have influenced history pretty much single-handedly. Yeah, although it's also a question of how much they influence things in their own time versus later on. And in some of those contexts, I don't know how much work has actually been done to figure out where Celos went and how influential he became later on as opposed to in his own context. Or you could say the same thing about Augustine. There's actually not a lot of great work done on Augustine in the context of the first century or so after he died, actually. So there's a lot of good work on how important Augustine is to much later contexts, especially early modern and later. But actually, the Augustine, as I know him from southern France in the fifth and sixth century, is actually not as central of a figure as we make him out to be. Yeah, I guess it is It is a question of how long do you want to go? Do you want to go just, I mean, his lifetime and immediately afterwards or long durée, long duration? It's an interesting point. Maybe one I should think a bit more about. Now, another point that I thought was interesting in the discussion is the comparison we've made at the end of the discussion of diagnosing political opponents maybe both in the past, but also in the present as mentally ill. And I think this is something that I've been encountering at least as an observer of world politics, so to speak. But what do you think about this, Merle? Do you see that in the United States and in your surroundings? Well, I think one could easily say that descriptions of former president Donald Trump were often framed in this way and that it was then cast upon political opponents who sided with him, who were on the more extreme side of him. And I think it's a way, as just pointed out, to easily and problematically label whole groups of people essentially as heretics, right? Maybe not in the strictly religious sense, but in the sense of 
these people are so outside the norm of acceptability and of rationality and of quote unquote proper behavior that that's how you label them as such because you don't want to try to engage in what's often been called their own thought world. You know, I remember this from maybe like eight or nine years ago. I remember finding a paper, I think it was an academic paper that tried to evaluate the intelligence of, of George Bush, right? Back then in the Bush years, the good old Bush years, I guess some people might say. But this was obviously an attempt to, to really smear George Bush by arguing that he was an idiot, like a scientifically, to define him, to, to diagnose him as an idiot. I think it was written by a psychiatrist or something. Yeah, I think so. And there's lots of memes of this since you brought up memes at the start of the podcast of him as less than intelligent. Okay, so I guess that before we wrap up this episode, we can kind of change the subject to to something else. And I know, Merle, you've been wanting to talk about your caffeine intake. So, So how is it like? And how has COVID change things for you. So first I want to ask you a question, Lee, before I answer your question, which is a proper way of doing things. How is it that you survive with no caffeine and survive the first year of your daughter's life without caffeine? That seems a little strange and mind-boggling to me. It's called mind over matter, Merle. Mind over matter. No, but more seriously, I was never into coffee. I never liked coffee. I don't get the point in coffee. It was just not something I liked. So I never got used to it either. You know, you don't like coffee. You don't like alcohol aside from red wine. And you don't like basically vegetables. So I'm very (laughs) curious how you survive sometimes. Well, things have changed. Things have changed. I've been drinking more. Uh, non-red wine alcohol and more vegetables (laughs) what do you drink now yeah i know definitely more beers some more liquor but yeah well i want to hang out with this newly yeah well if i ever get to actually (laughs) see you again (laughs) but to answer your question on caffeine my caffeine intake was at the beginning of this very high, but I think it leveled off for a while. It never reached this uh, apocryphal story that I have. And I know you like my apocryphal stories, Lee. So I'll tell this one. Back when my kids were very young, I think only a couple months old, I was teaching a introduction to you know, Western Civ course, I think they called it, at Mercer County Community College. And I had to go lecture twice a week and so one time I had a nice coffee, you know, a nice big eight, 10 ounce iced coffee. And I have a stovetop <laughs> espresso maker, you know, one of the ones that bubbles up from the top. And I made the whole thing and I dumped the whole thing in. It's like six, eight shots of espresso into <laughs> the iced coffee. And I drank it all because I was exhausted um, before lecture. And I got that caffeine boost that you get, which you don't know about apparently, but I got that boost and it lasted for about 12 minutes or something pathetic like that. <laughs> That's how tired I was. <laughs> but, you know, my caffeine intake actually has been pretty regular 
for the last six, seven months, just a couple of cups in the morning and then usually a tea in the afternoon, an afternoon tea guy. But our neighbors down the street who just moved left me one of those espresso makers that I swore I would never have in my house because they're absolutely addicting. And so now I make myself <laughs> a espresso in the afternoon, which very much helps my production in the afternoon. So I have one right before this podcast, but probably long-term is not ideal to have so much caffeine. So when will your kids be able to, to drink, I guess, some kind of coffee from that machine? Not for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, that's fair. Okay. So on this, uh, energetic note by Merle and his park full of stories we can conclude this episode and we'd like as usual to thank the LePage Center for funding us and of course our webmaster Verda Canati until next time stay safe stay socially distanced and let us know what kind of coffee you enjoy mm-hmm.